Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This week's Parsha is Baha'alotcha. It's the third portion in the Book of Numbers, and it really represents the beginning of the Israelites' journey in the desert, or Bamidbar. This is where they push off from Sinai and start making their way toward the Promised Land, and begin encountering some of the challenges that come along with that journey. Our guest for this conversation is Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. She's one of the rabbis of Temple Israel in Cape Town, South Africa. In fact, as we'll hear more about later, she's the first woman rabbi to serve that community in Cape Town. She also has her own podcast, which we'll talk more about at the end. Rabbi Emma Gottlieb, welcome. Thanks for joining us on 7 Minute Torah. Thanks. It's great to be here. So we're going to have an opportunity to get to know you better, about you and your rabbinate and the way that you think about Judaism. But let's talk about Baha'u'llah. This is a parsha that takes place in the desert. In fact, in some ways, this is the first one that's really in the desert. And one of the things that we see in this parsha is all these mini rebellions. And when we were talking about it before, you told me that you wanted to talk about the different ways that Moses reacts to the challenges. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I have to say the book of Numbers, uh, Bamidbar, is actually my favorite book of the Torah. I really feel like it has the most complex and dramatic episodes in the Israelite journey. And the relationships between the Israelite people and their leaders is really, in many ways, the real story of the book of Bamidbar. So we, we see a few different ways in which Moses responds to the people and also in, in which Moses is sort of wrestling with the burden of leadership and the responsibilities of leadership. Right. It's very much about leadership, actually. You have all these, as I said before, mini rebellions. You know, they, the people want more meat or the people are scared or Moses and Aaron are sorry, Miriam and Aaron are rebelling against Moses. And, and so I, I went through the Parsha and I counted actually four or five different reactions. Moses is clearly, do you think he's struggling here, not knowing what to do? Or do you think he's figuring it out as he goes along? I think he's struggling with change. As you mentioned, this is the Parsha where the Israelites actually begin to move away from Sinai. Every year I'm sort of surprised in you at how long the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. And we often don't really realize or talk about that all the way through the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way through the book of Leviticus, they're still at Sinai. And it, it's a little over a year um, of time. And so they're actually only starting to move now. And that means a change for the people. That means a change for the leadership. And change is complicated. And, and when there are changes for a community, and this is a really big change, it can affect leaders and leadership and the relationship between leaders and their community. Um, and one of the ways that that we know that we're seeing that is in this really interesting conversation between Moses and his father-in-law, who in this Parsha is called Hobab, but earlier we've heard him named Yitro. 
Um, and Moses comes to Hobab and says, you know, we're, we're about to leave. We're starting to move. We're going on this journey. Come with us. And Hobab initially says he, he's not going to come. And Moses almost begs him. He says, please do not leave us. We sort of see this almost anxiety or ambivalence that Moses is having about beginning this journey. We know from Parshat Yitro that his father-in-law has been a real support to him in learning how to be a leader, a leader and learning how to delegate and how to share the responsibilities and the burdens of leadership. And so part of it may be that Moses is sort of nervous about what's going to change as the people begin to move through the wilderness. Well, and it's actually not the first time we've seen Moses nervous about leadership. Way back when Moses gets called by God initially, the first thing Moses says when God says, I have a job for you is, no thanks, I'm not no interested. Thanks. Moses yeah. isn't looking for leadership. He isn't looking to be the one to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses has been kind of an unwilling is not the right word, but maybe a reticent leader from the very beginning of, of his story. Absolutely. And I think we see that there are sort of waves with Moses at times where he's more confident and competent and other times where he really struggles. You know, at the beginning of this Parsha, we actually see him competently and confidently leading. There's a, an episode where God is angry with the people when they begin to complain, but Moses is compassionate and prays to God to be merciful with them. Um, and it's only later that we see Moses start to act out in some of the other ways that we've seen uh, where Moses starts to to really be impacted negatively by the by the people's complaining. Yeah, I wonder if it's his fear, his anxiety, maybe just his overwhelming stress. It must have been a big job leading 600,000 people across the desert. Leadership can, can really be trying, especially when we don't know what's on the horizon. I think a lot of leaders in the past year or so can really relate to how much more difficult it is to lead your community when you don't know what the future looks like and you mm -hmm. don't know what kind of dangers are ahead. And the, the people are leaving the security of Sinai. They've, they've gotten comfortable there. They know that God is, is there at that mountain. Um, this is the first time that they're really going to put to the test whether or not God is able to travel with them, which in those days was a radical idea. And, and I think it's not just the people that are anxious about that. Moses is anxious and he really cries out to God and asks for help. I mean, he, he, we sort of see him reach a breaking point where he says, you know, this is horrible. Like, I, you know, kill me now. <laughs> you know, um, I, I can't do this anymore. I need help. He essentially says to God, this, this is too big a burden for me. I think he actually says these people are too big a burden for me. I can't do this myself. Right, which is sort of shocking when we think about the image of Moses and the way that we sort of think about Moses when we're not reading the text directly and the legacy of Moses. Um, it can be sort of shocking to hear him break down in this way. And also really beautiful to see God's response to Moses um, and it's fascinating in terms of what we just discussed about Hobab Yitro, that actually what God suggests for Moses, God's recommendation, is very, very similar to what Yitro had suggested to him back in Exodus to um, institute or maybe reinstitute or reaffirm a structure of delegated leadership where there will be 70 elders who um, will join Moses at the tent of meeting. One of the central ideas, I think, in the Moses story is Moses learning how to 
share responsibility. We see that, as you point out, way earlier in Yitro and here again with 70 elders. And then that leads to this really interesting incident where these two elders continue to prophesy, whatever that means, right? They're speaking in tongues or they're, they're somehow speaking for God. And Joshua comes running to Moses and says, Moses, make them stop. And Moses says, would that all of God's people were prophets. So he is clearly not looking to be in charge all on his own. He understands that he needs structures and he needs a team in order to be his best leader. Absolutely. And yet this becomes the sort of instigating event that leads to the rebellions that we're about to see first with um, in this Parsha with Miriam and Aaron, who seem to feel like they've been left out somehow of this structure, that part of their complaint is that Moses is the only one who gets to receive God's word, which we just learned isn't true. There's actually 70 people who are going to join Moses in this, in this role, but somehow Miriam and Aaron have been left out of that. And then in Parshat Korach, of course, we're going to see a bigger version of that same complaint where Korach is also going to accuse Moses of keeping all the holy responsibilities and the God talking to himself. There's this sort of dual sides of the coin where on the one hand, um, Moses needs to be able to share leadership. And on the other hand, as soon as leadership is open for sharing, there become power struggles. So what do you think is the lesson? You know, is this about sharing leadership? Is this about the imperfection of leaders, Moses being human and not a god? What are we supposed to learn here? Yeah, I think it's um, a bit of both of those things. I mean, I think there's a lot here for leaders to draw on for themselves, a lot about the importance of shared leadership, delegation, self-care, asking for help when you need it you know, awareness that there are times where what is happening beyond ourselves impacts the way that we lead. So if if we're leaders and our community is going through a time of change, we need to be aware that that's going to impact how we relate to our community, how they relate to us. Um, and also, just as with every other instance where we see the frailties and faults of our biblical characters, some compassion for both leaders and communities who are going through times of change and transition, that um, that it may not, there may be times where it doesn't bring out the best in them, um, and that they're going to have to find ways to work through it together to try new models of community organizing and leadership organizing and, okay. and move through the wilderness together. And maybe that we're at our best when we when we collaborate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Rabbi Emma Gottlieb, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you. It's always great to talk about Torah with a friend. That's our interview with Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. Stick around for the rest of the conversation if you'd like to learn more from Cape Town's first woman rabbi and podcaster. And as always, thanks for listening and have a great week. So now I've got some questions for you, not about the Parsha, but let's, let's talk about you. So first of all, you are the rabbi or one of the rabbis at Temple Israel in Cape Town, South Africa. Funny, you don't sound South African. (laughs) I happen to know that you're Canadian. In fact, you grew up in the congregation that I'm currently the, the rabbi. Well, grew up in, among other places, the congregation that I'm currently the rabbi of, Kolami and Thornhill. But tell us about the experience of being a rabbi in South Africa. And and actually, along with that, 
You are, I believe, the first woman rabbi. Is it in Cape Town or is it in South Africa? In Cape Town, the first uh, woman to serve full time in a congregation in Cape Town. A tremendous honor and a big part of uh, why I moved to South Africa. So um, I, I am uh, I'm Canadian uh, raised, um, educated in uh, America at HUC and redeemed there. Um, and I started my career in the States. Um, and, you know, through the twists and turns of uh, fates, the opportunity came to me to move to Cape Town and to, to step into this, you know, pioneering role that really would not have been available to me in North America, where I'm not part of the first generation of women rabbis and where, um, you know, thankfully for me, I was able to, to study and become a rabbi on the shoulders of um, a few generations of women rabbis before me. And I never imagined that I would be uh, a first uh, woman rabbi anywhere. Um, and uh, when I had the opportunity to imagine what, what that would be like for myself and what I might be able to bring to a community that hadn't yet had the opportunity to have a woman rabbi, um, it felt really important to say yes to that. And um, it's been incredible so far. I've been in Cape Town for um, about two and a half years. And um, they're an incredible community. Cape Town is the most beautiful city. South Africa is a really um, incredible, complicated, beautiful country. And um, there's a lot of incredible work to do and to be done. And uh, it's been great so far. Do you find it very different from serving a Jewish community in North America? In some ways, it's really different. In other ways, it's very similar. So um, Temple Israel is part of the South African Union for Progressive Judaism, which is sort of a, a sister to the URJ, the Union for Reform Judaism here in North America, under the same umbrella of the World Union for Progressive Judaism. So um, a lot of the... Um, ritual, the service style, the liturgy, the music even, a lot of it is very similar. We use the same sidur. Um, and, um, and so if you are, you know, if you're someone who is used to going to reform services in um, North America, you can very comfortably show up at a service at Temple Israel. You'll know a lot of the melodies. You'll know the sidur. Um, it won't feel very different. Um, and in other ways, it is different in that in some of the areas of progress um, within progressive Judaism, um, South Africa is behind North America. So um, women rabbis being a, a great example of that in North America, we're coming up on 50 years of having women rabbis uh, in our synagogues and, and being ordained. And in South Africa, we're still in the first generation um, of women serving um, full-time as rabbis. There have been, um, over the years, there have been visiting women rabbis and um, student, student rabbis who were women who served for shorter periods in some of the congregations in South Africa, but um, to have full-time female leadership um, is new. And so, you know, uh, right now, Rabbi Julia Margulis, who's the, uh, one of the rabbis in Johannesburg, um, she's the, the chair this year of our national rabbinic movement. Um, and it's the first time a woman's ever been the chair. And so, you know, all those kinds of firsts that um, in North American history are, um, 
you know, a few decades past now are just happening in South Africa. And so there are a few different areas where, where that's true, where um, what, we, what we've seen and learned um, in our sister movements um, are only now happening in South Africa. And it's really exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, it sounds exciting to be a first in that way. Is it also challenging? Is there pushback? Is there resistance against women rabbis in the community? Um, there's not. Um, there's not a lot of resistance or pushback within the progressive movement. They um, they're really excited and proud and ready. And and they, and again, they've had um, lots of time to sort of get used to the idea of women rabbis over the years as there have been visiting women rabbis and um, shorter term placements. But in South Africa, the progressive movement is very small and um, and exists in a broader Jewish context that is very, very different than North America where the progressive movement, especially in, in the States, but Canada benefits from it, um, is the majority uh, you know, the largest denomination. Um, in South Africa, the Orthodox um, movement um, is the largest, and they have really a monopoly on all of the Jewish organizations and institutions. They have a lot of power, um, and there's a, a long, complicated history between them and the progressive movement, and a lot of resistance to um, progressive Judaism and its growth in South Africa. Um, and so that certainly translates and creates uh, additional complications for the women rabbis who are um, even less well accepted than our male colleagues who face their own challenges in that context. Um, so there, there are places where, where we're not recognized, where we're less welcome, um, and where our voices are not yet invited. But that's part of the, part of the opportunity and the excitement is is being part of that pushback and growth and um, hopefully building towards a time where there'll be a different narrative for the country. So you really are doing pioneering work then? Yeah. Speaking of being a woman rabbi, you have a podcast of your own, which is called Women Rabbis Talk. I do. Thank you for sharing about it. Yeah, Women Rabbis Talk podcast, which is available wherever you get your other podcasts. Um, I co-host it with Rabbi Marcy Bellows-Lindenman, who's in Connecticut and is one of my uh, closest uh, rabbi friends. And we, um, we talk each uh, episode with a different female or female-identified rabbi um, about what it is to be a woman and to be a rabbi and all of the different types of conversations that come up around that. We really wanted to spotlight different kinds of women and women rabbis and to really show that there's not just one way to be a rabbi or a woman rabbi and, um, and especially to sort of uplift some of our colleagues who don't always have the opportunity to be in the spotlight in the media um, who don't get on those top 10 uh, influential rabbi lists. And, um, you know, there are so many incredible uh, rabbis out there and incredible women rabbis out there. And we just wanted to bring that more into people's uh, awareness and lives and ears. Um, and, uh, and also just to humanize the rabbinate a little bit and talk about sort of, you know, what, what would surprise people to know about rabbis or women rabbis and um, to hear their stories and learn a little bit about their personal lives and 
uh, you know, that we exist off the bima um, right. as three-dimensional people. And, um, and it's been really, really um, a beautiful experience so far to hear from our colleagues and share their stories and their voices with our listeners. It's been great. It kind of relates to this week's Torah portion, actually, the idea of Moses, although Moses is not a woman rabbi, but Moses as a leader, as a, as a real person, right? An imperfect person, a person who's struggling, a person with fears and hopes of, of their own. I've, I've listened to several episodes of your podcast, and the, the conversations are, are fascinating, talking about leadership, talking about relationship to Israel, talking about congregational work, talking about financial issues, you know, what is it to be... I, I've never been a woman rabbi, so I appreciate getting that perspective. And I think I think it's great that we're talking about with with people who are in leadership roles about what it is to be real people. Absolutely. And and I think we're also often exploring this question of, you know, in what areas is it relevant that we're women and rabbis? And in what areas is it irrelevant where where the things that we're thinking about and talking about are the same as our male colleagues and where there isn't a difference? And it's fascinating to hear from our guests. You know, some of them feel very strongly that there isn't a difference, that there shouldn't be a difference, that we're past that conversation already. Um, and others of them feel still very invested um, in how important it is to name the differences and be aware of the differences. And Interesting. Um, that's been really fascinating. And I think it, it is true. I mean, Moses also was, was a pioneer. He didn't have a model to follow. Uh, he didn't have, you know, a, a, a senior rabbi or a mentor to learn from. Um, he's really um, dependent on God. He's dependent on Aaron and Miriam as his, his co-leaders. He's dependent on Yitro. Um, for whatever mentorship he receives there. And, um, and, you know, I think all all leaders and all rabbis can really relate to those kinds of struggles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea of pioneering. I mean, even though, as you point out, we are coming up on 50 years since the ordination of Rabbi Sally Priestan, who was the first woman ordained in North America as a right. rabbi, we're really, I mean, 50 years in the history of Judaism is nothing. Right. So really, we're we're still in the early days of women in those kinds of leadership roles. So I, I, I think the whole Jewish community is still figuring out what that means. And I, I appreciate that that you're adding to that conversation. It's a really important conversation to be having right now. Yeah, thank you. I think one of the other main themes of Bamidbar is this story of how long does it take for a people to change and to learn um, and for how many generations um, does it take to to move through trauma, to um, really be independent and free? Um, and part of the lesson of Bamibar is, is that it takes at least one, if not more, generations. And, and I think we see that also in the rabbinate, that with every generation, the rabbinate shifts and changes, and that affects all rabbis, not just women rabbis, but um, the, you know, in this past, these past few generations have been impacted by the addition of women rabbis um, in really positive ways, in really challenging ways. Um, and now, you know, that starts a whole new generational um, process of how, how long will it take uh, women rabbis to um, integrate um, into the rabbinate to the point where we aren't having conversations like this, or it's not something that we think about or notice. Um, but that it's just a reality. Right. So can I ask you a few questions about you and your Jewish life? Sure. 
All right. So is there one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful? Um, I find almost every Jewish ritual particularly meaningful, which is probably why I'm a rabbi. But um, I every year I fall in love over and over again with the counting of the Omer, um, which I just think is such a beautiful part of the Jewish calendar and the opportunity to to daily count um, a journey from um, uh, a place of restriction uh, to a place of freedom and revelation. And the time period between Pesach and Shavuot, right? Exactly. So from Exodus to Sinai, essentially from slavery into freedom, where you count, traditionally you count each one of those 49 days from one right. holiday to the next. Exactly. And to move through that both as a community and as individuals to think about what it means to be moving from um, slavery to freedom, whatever that looks like in our personal lives, in our individual lives, in our communal lives, in our global life. Um, so I, I always really, really appreciate that opportunity to count those days and, and be immersed in that thinking. Um, and then I also um, feel like, and I, I know this is uh, really cliche, but um, our morning rituals, um, I think Judaism just has it absolutely right um, in terms of how we structure grief and mourning um, and how we ritualize and memorialize um, our both our um, individual personal family losses um, and also our national communal uh, historical losses and traumas and um, I, I just think some of the most powerful lessons about grief trauma humanity community and how to move through um those things uh, are embedded in our jewish rituals mm -hmm. yeah it's probably a conversation worth having in and of itself how, yeah. how shiva moves us into shloshim and shloshim moves us into the year of mourning and how it how it helps you move through all of those emotions that are associated with loss that we go exactly through. exactly and then and then the idea of having specific times where we mourn our collective losses and our national tragedies that we that we don't carry our collective traumas with us every day that we have assigned times and spaces to immerse ourselves in that those pains um, and then we put them away and we we move back into life and and the Jewish imperative to to choose life um, and to choose blessing and to to not get stuck in those uh, dark places and those sad places, I, I just think is so important. So speaking of national commemorations, what's your favorite holiday? <laughs> my favorite Jewish holiday or my favorite holiday all, all around? Well, I meant Jewish, but if you can answer <laughs> both if you'd like to. Um, yeah, um, my favorite Jewish holiday right now, I, it's, it changes over time. Um, I love Shavuot a lot right now. I really love the the tikkun lel, the sort of all night study and the, the opportunity to really come together in a different way to study Torah and to receive Torah anew each year. Um, and, um, and then outside of the Jewish calendar, my favorite holiday is American Thanksgiving because it's when I lived in America, it was the only holiday where I got to actually like sit down and eat a meal and be a family member and not be balancing work and family. And um, I could 
not be a rabbi on American Thanksgiving and just enjoy all the family drama and the food. <laughs> and I, I completely share that. I've lived in Canada now for 10 years, but I'm American, as you know, and, and Thanksgiving is the one is one of the things that I really miss about the United States. But actually, there's there's something very Jewish about Thanksgiving, oh, yeah. right? A sense of gratitude, the family, the sort of looking backwards and ahead. I think it's not a Jewish holiday, but to me, it's a in some ways it is a Jewish holiday. Yeah, I think especially if we can divorce it from its historical origins, which are deeply problematic. Fair. All right, one last question. Yeah. What book do we all need to read? So I um, have just been reading with my uh, with a group in my congregation, Cast by Isabella Wilkerson, which I know a lot of people have been reading uh, this year or this past year or so. Um, it's really um, uh, a very powerful and painful um, exploration of um, the history of racism and caste and racist based systems and uh so i definitely recommend if you haven't read it to read it um and then i also just started um rabbi larry englander's new historical fiction novel about maimonides and i actually i don't have it in front of me so i don't, I don't want to say the title because i don't want to get it wrong but uh if you google rabbi larry englander i think micah you're going to go pull it off your shelf excellent it's thank called you the prince, of, prince healers. of healers yeah prince of healers thank you um and it's about maimonides and i love historical fiction i've always been a huge fan of historical fiction and when um when there's an opportunity to um, have Jewish historical fiction. It's even better. Um, and Larry is a great rabbi and a great writer, and I'm really enjoying it so far. So um, if you're looking for a, a good novel and some Jewish learning uh, along the way, I would really recommend that. There you have it. One fiction, one nonfiction, one Jewish book, one non-Jewish book. Rabbi Emma Gottlieb, thank you for your time, for our conversation, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure for me as well. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.